Hello and welcome to the Practical Leadership Podcast, where I interview great leaders and try to extract their wisdom and their experience for you to learn from and hopefully avoid making their mistakes. If you want to upgrade your leadership skills in 25 minutes, check out practical-leadership.academy. Dan Thompson, thank you very much for joining me. Can I ask you, as co-founder, CEO of Cluster, ex-theoretical physicist, numbers man extreme, right? Went through uh, InsureTech, you've been a data analyst, you were a consultant you're in reinsurance, I think, as well. You were trying to forecast hurricanes. Okay. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as, as an encapsulation of where you've got to so far, is that about right? What did I miss? It is. No, you're spot on, spot on. So, um, yeah, uh, numbers, numbers man through and through, theoretical physicist. Uh, I worked at a startup shortly after graduating. Uh, it was my first taste of uh, startups, especially B2B startups. It's called Actress. Uh, it's gone on to do very well. Um, moving to reinsurance, as you said, forecasting uh, big catastrophic events like hurricanes, terror attacks. Um, I I did the forecast for the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Um, so so quite a few quite a few big events like that. Um, and yeah, essentially that background. Uh, from there, I stumbled into Cluster. Uh, the the big problem of uh, of revenue forecasting analytics, uh, the skill set required for forecasting catastrophes isn't isn't too different from uh, forecasting revenue. Well, and some revenue forecasts are pretty catastrophic these days. So that's, <laughs> well, that works out, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so as a numbers man, then how does it work that when you when it comes up against the the very organic, messy people side of your business? Because you've built a fair old team there not too long a time. We've been at this we're at cluster now for, what, nearly seven years? Uh, yeah, coming up to that, coming up to that, yeah, yeah. And how many folk um, are there? Uh, almost 30. 30 people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're the big boss, right? Something so like you, that. I you manage them strictly according to the numbers. Yes. Well, we like to um, we like to have a, have a tight culture, tight framework, tight processes but then give them a lot of responsibility and accountability and the freedom to act within that. So, um, yeah, we like to take, take people with, um, a lot of, um, a lot of drive, a lot of ambition, uh, give them, give them the frameworks, uh, to work within and then just let them fly. And it's, uh, working out pretty well. There's a, a thing, um, I, I harp on about this and I call it tight, loose, tight. So you're really tight about what you want and how you're going to measure it and what good looks like and all that loose a bit, go wild. How you do it is why we hired you. And then tight about accountability. Does that kind of describe what you're trying to do? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got the um you've got the kind of tight tight grip around what we're trying to achieve and you've got the tight grip around the culture and the very high bar that we operate with, both in terms of how people should be acting and the quality of our products and service. But then um outside of that within an individual role, uh, people have got uh, plenty of freedom to to go out and uh, go out and succeed. Yeah. So how annoyed were you when Mark Zuckerberg stole all your cultural ideas? I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's the uh, the meta meta makes me. Yeah, so um, absolutely, it was it was mortifying, but uh, I got past it. Oh, good for you. So when you when you are you got obviously you've, you're managing some managers in your team there just now, hmm. and when you see these people coming into these roles, first off. 
Uh, they're not they're, they're the cluster mates, if they're, they're not the meta mates. Yeah. Uh, what is it you're telling them to do? What are you advising them to do? The start. Yeah. yeah, I think um, I think just, just to start with avoiding the obvious problem as we as uh, as we kind of discussed before, when you've got got a 22, 23, 24 year old getting their first management uh, role, um, if if they go in there with no uh, no guidance, you basically start the day by asking people to do things and then continuing to do that. And then the person who's being asked uh, doesn't get the chance for feedback, doesn't get structure, doesn't know whether they'll be expected to do it in the weeks and months to come. It's only firefighting short-term problems, um, and and it just it just explodes into a big problem. I think that's that's the cause of of most problems of first-time managers. Um, so I think um, when we when we promote to to management positions, which we do very very quickly and and frequently, um, focusing on three things is key. So those are frameworks, processes, and culture. So the first one is frameworks. Everyone should know the framework of the company and the framework of the role and what you're trying to achieve. What, what are the boundaries and what's your responsibility, someone else's responsibility? What triggers certain processes? Uh, how frequently are certain processes being done? Um, and, um, and more holistically, how is, how is the company operating? Um, the second part is processes. So that could be daily daily meetings, a daily stand up. If you're an engineer, if you have a weekly uh, a weekly one to one or, or a monthly forecast, whatever it might be. These processes that recur um, should be completely clear, transparent, and set out. So, um, in the example of a meeting, there should be the chance for both parties, all parties, to give give clear feedback and be held accountable to what they promised they would do last time. Talk about what they're going to do next time, how they're going to improve on what they succeeded. In last time, what, what what they might have had challenges with from last time, and then that way everyone knows they've got challenges on a day to day basis. They know they've got the chance in two days or in three days or a week or a month to then um, you know write down all those points and then bring them up in the meeting. And then all these processes, both in terms of meetings and uh, operational processes or engineering processes, how quickly you, you shipping your products, etc. These are all very important, um, not only to to run but to have completely transparent across the business. Um, and lastly, culture. It's very important that everyone knows the culture of the business, how you operate. Um, also, having having your own culture as a manager, um, make sure they know how you operate. So, I've got a I've got an internal document called Working with Dan. Um, how and it just tells people how I operate. So, if, if people haven't worked with me, particularly now we're bigger, um, it says you know Dan um, Dan likes some deep thinking time. Dan loves meetings and and verbalizing. If you message me on Teams, I might miss it because I've got. Lots of people messaging on teams. If you want to send something in a formal email, great, and we'll review it in a meeting. Just you know how my how my tone is, how I work, how I think, and that helps people work with me. But also, um, they can then come to me and tell me how they work and how they think, and then that that optimizes how the business operates. When you put that together, was it something you just would you dash it off, or actually, how did you find putting it? Really, it must have been quite a reflective self. It's of an introspect, a moment of introspection for you. It was, it was, it was, um, it's, but I think it's, if you ask someone to do it, I think they'd be able to get the first draft pretty quickly because everyone's aware of, if you're a talkative, uh, if you're a talkative person, if you're an extrovert or if you're an introvert and you prefer, um, you know, more, more organization or more free flowing collaboration, whatever it might be, everyone would be able to just immediately say how they prefer to operate. Um, and if someone joins a company, they've got no idea how you operate. So having that formalized is great. Um, it wasn't my idea. It was in um, High Growth Handbook by Elad Gill. Um, I think plenty of uh, plenty of firms in, in San Francisco use that method. 
Nice. It's a lovely idea. Lovely idea. I mean, um, somebody else I spoke to fairly recently, she said uh, that she not only asked her, her reports how they liked to be managed, but then in turn uh, asked and told her manager, how do you like people working with you? And this is how I like to be managed. So it's, as you said, it's that, it's that well, not quite radical candor at that level, but it's transparency on how best things fit together. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think it's um, it it goes hand in hand with company culture and other things. Is that if someone joins a company or if you start working with someone you've never worked with before, you're just assuming that they're the average person who who sends emails in a certain way, who you know talks on the phone in a certain way, whatever it might be. But obviously, everyone's different, so having that completely open, put up front uh, is a great starting point. What do you think if you had to pick out of those three, the framework processes and culture, what would you think would be the most important one that you would advise uh, somebody taking on one of these roles? How would you go about doing that? Yeah, I'd say creating uh, creating a world-leading culture would be the most important. Um, once you create the once you create the culture, you're really empowering people, and then they can um, they can assist with the other areas. But if you've got uh, a culture that you haven't gone out of your way to work towards if you've let it evolve organically and sometimes um sometimes the loudest people in the room don't necessarily reflect what culture you want and then they're the ones who dominate what everyone else thinks the culture is so you're crafting a purposeful culture absolutely absolutely um i think crafting it as early as possible is very important as well because otherwise it, it it organically moves in ways you can't always control and in directions uh you might not want it to go um, so yeah, that's what we did at Cluster. I'd say define it as early as possible. Um, make sure that everyone in the company um, agrees with what it is, and then codify it. So at Cluster, we have it in a in a presentation. It's I think it's over a hundred slides right now, and that is shown to pros- prospective candidates. So um, obviously, hiring is a two way street. If people don't like the culture, then they shouldn't be joining in the first place. They shouldn't be hit with it after they've started. Um, then once they've started, it's part of the onboarding. Um, we, I, I give them a, a culture presentation and they can um, ask any questions and I run through our culture and I give them example after example after example of um, how every big achievement we've made as a company um, is, is reflected in our culture. Um, and then lastly, on a day-to-day basis, it's very important that anytime you celebrate, um, you celebrate wins, which for us is on a daily basis. We've got a wins channel; they're all coming through. It's to say this person achieved that, this salesperson got a meeting with that company, this engineer shipped a product early to a really high quality. Whatever it might be, we we have that story and that narrative, and we tie it back to our culture. What part of our culture did that embody? And then it, you know, people are always exposed to what our culture is, and it, it's my job to be banging that drum so much until people are bored with what our culture is. Um, but then at least I know, you know, when I'm not in the room, everyone else will be um, will be re- representing the high bar of our culture as well. Was it culture each strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Really, didn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. When you're trying to build this a culture, a culture of empowerment in particular, how do you find the boundaries? I mean, because I worked for a company where the, the again the, the craft was let's build this culture of empowerment, but what you ended up with was a lack of focus. Everybody was empowered to do everything too much in some cases. Salespeople creating things that you know practically didn't exist as long as they could find a customer for it. Yeah, where you go? How do you keep that? How do you rein that in without being oppressive? Absolutely. I think, um, I think as you were saying before, tight, loose, tight, or, or 
the way you phrased it, if you're really tight with the objective, so if you've got really clear OKRs or really clear goals, if you're if you're a sales development rep and you've got really clear a really clear ideal customer persona, um, what type of person within what type of company in what geography are you trying to put meeting meetings with? But you have freedom of how to get there. Or if you're an engineer, you've got a really tight specification of what the product is, what it should do. But you've got freedom of what um, how to go around that challenge or maybe certain areas of technology to use to do that. So um, the the success criteria have to be uh, very constrained. I think. Um, I think Peter Till quite famously said that no one's no one's allowed to talk to him other than on the one thing that um, they've been tasked to do. So everyone at early PayPal or I think uh, Confluent, uh, Confluent or whatever it was before the merger, um, everyone had one task and they weren't allowed to even think of anything else outside the one task. And so um, that's that's a bit uh, a bit more controlling than what we do, but um, but. Um, it was successful, and so I think having having a, a single or at least a very narrow focus on outcomes uh, is how you control that. But then the freedoms of how to get there, um, what's important, and as long as your culture means that people treat each other with respect, that ethically um, they stand up to the high bar of the business, you know they're not going to go and do something unethical um, to achieve the goals. What was the biggest mistake that you learned from? So. The biggest mistake that I learned from was actually a mistake I, um, you know, as a company has happened, it's happened a few times. I've seen it happen uh, across the industry a lot, and it's um, hiring to do with obvious, obvious sections on their CV. And now there's a lot out there at the moment. So I don't care if you've got a degree, I don't care from your background, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't, I, I don't fully uh, subscribe to that ethos because. If someone's gone to university and 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 got got a great degree, they have worked very hard for three years or four years or five years. And particularly if it's someone from um, uh, a more challenging background, and if they've gone over many hurdles to get there, I think that's quite a slap in the face. Um, once once they've come out of that degree, but I think the the challenge and the realization is that if you've got someone who's got an amazing degree, who's been the captain of every sports team, um, and and got the longest CV in the world in terms of achievements, objectively they have worked very hard. For many many years, they probably had to wake up early to go to sports practice and 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 get straight A stars and do all the rest. Um, but there's actually a balance, and it's is the extent to which they're so much more of a hard worker, at least historically, to another candidate. Is that outweighed by any feeling that that those achievements might springboard them to something else? And so, so what I make clear in hiring is that although their CV is amazing and they've they work very hard, um, that has put them up the pile which is amazing but it doesn't put them up the rungs in terms of a role i think that's quite a nuanced difference so i think i think you do need to um uh do you need to accept that people's achievements whether it's degrees or anything else um, are very powerful balancing that and giving other people the opportunity who, who may not have the push to work very hard uh in their early years is is a challenge and i'm still not sure i'm still not sure i've got that right and i know that lots of other companies haven't either that's a that's a really interesting nuance you're trying to explain and explore there. So you've got somebody who's got a good degree, good background, getting up at five o'clock to row, or whatever it is they're doing mm. for four years, and you've got somebody who hasn't, mm. and they're both. Well, one the, the person who has is probably more driven than yeah. the person who hasn't. Hmm. Because I've always I've always struggled with this as well, frankly. When you look at somebody who's got a degree, there's a degree of eloquence, and sometimes um, 
I think it really boils down. My, my father-in-law, he said that the one thing you're guaranteed to get out of any university or college education, older. That's it. Guaranteed to get older. And sometimes just having that freedom to sit around and live in your own head for a while is of value. Yeah. I'm not saying you have to have a degree for him. You know, I'm absolutely an advocate of taking that off of your off of your, your your job specs and your adverts to maximize the likelihood that people, the unlikely people will apply. Yeah. You know, the fewer criteria you can have on your job specifications down to the absolute job to be done maximizes your candidate pool, makes it more likely that perhaps unconventional or hopefully newly conventional people will apply to your role and enhances diversity all around. Yeah. But yet, however, you know, you're saying there is still that advantage Mm. There is some sometimes those people do turn out to be absolutely incredible as as the CV would imply. Um, but other times there are challenges, um, and it's it's spotting that spotting that difference, uh, which is a challenge. I know I've spoken to a lot of people at a lot, a lot of other companies who um, who who have a similar similar issue. But you know, G- Google have spent however long um, optimizing the perfect hiring algorithm. They've they've still said they haven't cracked it either. So. Um, I think we've all got a similar challenge. I've got a lot of um, HR talent type people in my in my, my network, and a couple of the people I was speaking to most recently were talking about recruitment and about this sort of challenge. And uh, yes, we all try to make hiring as data driven as possible. And as it's, a, it's a thing I teach in one of my courses is how do you hire with data? And yet you're still there face to face with this organic, messy human beings. So you have to get the sense of them. You try to pull their experience, their pull their capability, their potential out of a conversation. Uh, interesting. Thank you. What are you working on at present, Dan? Uh, we've got plenty of exciting things coming up. Um, we've we've got plenty of partnerships that we are launching with some of the biggest biggest names in B two B SaaS, um, including HubSpot. Um, our product updates uh, are out of this world. We've we've had an amazing summer and. Um, that is uh, ending in an autumn of, of uh, shipments almost week after week. Um, and we've got some other exciting news that I'm not at liberty to say at the moment. Um, so watch this space. Uh, I'm sure I'll be pretty loud loud and proud on social media and LinkedIn. But um, yeah, as as we were talking about earlier, um, the, the team had encouraged me to be sharing our culture that I bang the drum about all day, every day on LinkedIn. And um, some people seem to find it, uh, find it amusing or, or get some sort of value out of it. So I'm sure I'll keep going. What are you reading and listening to at the moment? Yeah, so as I alluded to before, I've got I've got two kind of textbooks that, that I call them like reference books that, that I keep mm. on the side. So one's High Growth Handbook by Elad Gill, um, and one's The Great CEO Within uh, by Matt Matthew Mockery or Matt Mockery. Um, and those are kind of um, you know literally chapter after chapter on how to run a funding round, how to recruit, how to run meetings, all these all these operational tasks for senior leadership or a CEO. I've kind of got them on the side, so I'm always reading those. Um, I recently finished Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. I'm just starting high output management, which has been, uh, I should have read that a long time ago. Um, but anyway, I've just started that. Um, sadly, I'm, I'm a big lover of fiction, but I don't really have much time for fiction these days. So I haven't got any fiction on the go at the moment. Um, but what do you like? What do you like listening? What do you like reading when you do? Well, I'm reading. Um, I, like, I like trying to go through the classics. I'm not trying to sound. Um, much. <laughs> Great expectations. 
Yes, yeah, yeah, stuff like that, stuff like that. I like to, um, I think, well, if, if if people who know a lot more than me uh, say that they're good books, then um, that's probably where I should start. So yeah, I like to go through the classics or a bit of a, a bit of a crime thriller, a bit of Graham Greene or something like that as well. Anything that's been in print for more than 50 years. That's it. If it stood the test of time, then, yeah. That's it. I mean, even the leadership stuff. I mean, frankly, I mean, because when I was putting together um, uh, my, my practical leadership stuff, when I was putting together all the course material there, I was looking back to the, the, the timeless things. I mean, some of the content's based on Dale Carnegie from 1936, How to yeah. Win Friends. I mean, and, and Peter Drucker, 1967. This stuff's been around for a long time. Yes, the attitudes have changed, yes, and all that. But mm. whether it's fiction or whether it's, it's non-fiction, it's, as you said, it stood the test of time. Well, that's it. It's the, it's the ultimate social proof. I think, I think you can. Yes. Um, I'm not... I'm not Putting down anyone who publishes something today, but um, if you publish something today and it's and it makes it big and it's still big in fifty years, then that is that's uh, very impressive. So that's where I kind of start. Obviously, I'm time limited, so I just start from a few hundred years ago and work forward. Hopefully, I'll get to present day at some point. I, I can't remember what date it was, but there was some date and time where it would have actually been possible to read all of the books that had ever been printed. <laughs> that would have been fun. Yeah. That would have been what are you reading? Oh, both of them. Yeah, you know <laughs> the holy bible and the other one that's your lot that's yeah. everything i've ever done uh, if you could and i think you should what would you like to thank young dan for having done so well young dan um i think uh with hindsight i kind of grew the confidence as a, as a young as a young boy as a young dan um to be a bit different and not really care uh, too much uh, about about the thoughts of other people and how different you are. So um, I think I think that's quite a good skill to have. I think I didn't appreciate it at the time. I didn't even know. Um, but you know, gr- growing up, everyone everyone wants to be a footballer, and that was it. And obviously, football's great. I love football. But I was I was doing football, but also um, you know, learning to juggle, doing a Rubik's cube, making web pages, like do, do, doing quite uh, unusual things. And um, sometimes that goes down well at school. Sometimes it doesn't, and um, I was just quite indifferent to it, and um, just just off on my own, doing my own things. And I think that um, that is quite powerful, um, particularly as an adult. Um, I had I had a fairly nice career before I started this, and um, when I said I was going to quit to 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 do this idea that became Cluster, um, then you know the the there were plenty. A lot more raised eyebrows and a lot more people who uh, thought I was crazy than people who thought it was a good idea. So I think having that kind of indifference or, or self belief or just and the, the the drive to do whatever you, whatever entertains you, um, it's quite a good thing. I'll tell you what else actually. One of the reasons I ask this, it's kind of it's an interesting question to do, okay. but one of the reasons I ask it is that I've got two kids, and I'm always on the hunt for well, how should I be getting them to be you know because mm. i'm an amateur parent we're all amateur parents we're making this stuff up as we go along i mean i was saying to my, my eight-year-old the other day i says i've never been the parent of an eight-year-old child before yeah. i don't know what eight-year-old boys are supposed to be doing i'm making this up i mean i yeah. didn't actually know my dad when i was eight years old which is good and bad you've no models but so one of the reasons i'm asking this is okay that was good i like that one i'll take that one <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It is. Add it to the book. Well, I think um, when I was uh, when I just started my career, when I was in my early twenties, 
I used to go on the Wikipedia page of anyone who I thought was successful that I would like to vaguely be like and try to spot a trend. And it was technology leaders, politicians, anyone who's successful at anything. And there was an underlying trend that they kind of, they very often did something quite unusual of merit, like when they were at school. It's like Top Achiever in X, won some, won some sort of eccentric award or like built built a robot or, you know, I think everyone who started PayPal, four out of five of them have built a, like a bomb in their back garden. <laughs> and um, obviously that's a bit much, but um, it's, it's, yeah, I think someone with the, um, you know, interest in things that might be a bit unusual uh, is a positive indicator. I'm, I'm, I'm smiling here. You can't see it on the, on the recording, but I am because uh, I did something fairly similar not that long ago because, again, this has been driving my thinking for my kids and stuff. It's a bit too late for me, but and the thing that I came up with right. was, there you go, never too late, never too late. Uh, it was uh, courage, as you mentioned, it's the courage to go off and be different, and curiosity, curiosity to build bombs in your back garden, the courage and the curiosity, and that seems to be the, the, the trends, the traits, rather, that these uh, interesting people have. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Lastly, as we wrap up then, how can people find you, Dan? Uh, I guess I'm most noisy on LinkedIn. So find me Dan Thompson. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, posting posting uh, amusing things or thoughts on our culture. Um, if you can guess my email, uh, please, please do send me an email. I promise I'll, I'll try to reply as quick as I can. Um, I've got a website that I don't, don't put much on, danthompson.me. Um, but yeah, I'll say LinkedIn's the best place. Dan Thompson, CEO of Cluster. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thanks, Paul. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining me today. Your homework, subscribe and share this with a friend or colleague. Please leave your five-star review and any comments you have because that really helps me to improve every day and it helps people to discover me online. If you want to upgrade your leadership skills in 25 minutes, you should check out practical-leadership.academy. Thank you.